Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we speak to the head of London Drugs about the business that's been in his family for nearly 50 years now, his Chinese heritage, the rise and incidents of anti-Asian racism in Canada, and why he's felt the need to speak out about it. But first, we have an in-depth look at the war in Ukraine on a day when Russia marked 77 years since its victory over Nazi Germany in the Second World War. We speak with a Russia expert about what was in Vladimir's much-anticipated speech today and what wasn't. We speak to a former commander of the Australian Defence College and author of War Transformed about the war itself, and to a Ukrainian MP about the view from Kyiv and reaction to the Prime Minister's visit to the Ukrainian capital on Sunday. Team USA beating the Soviet Union segues nicely into our first story tonight. Yeah, that's the sound of a military parade. It was Victory Day today in Russia, across the country, and in Moscow. Uh, A big parade. It's like this every year, 77 years now, uh, since the Soviets defeated Nazi Germany. They celebrate this day every year. It's a big deal in the country. And of course, this year, the war in Ukraine loomed very large over the whole affair. It had been anticipated by many that Vladimir Putin would say something of consequence in his speech today regarding the so-called military operation, the invasion of Ukraine. Well, in his 11-minute speech, he didn't mention Ukraine to the thousands of troops assembled on Red Square. He gave no assessment of how it's going, where it's going, instead turning to a familiar litany of complaints about external threats trying to divide Russia and using victory 77 years ago to try to justify an invasion now about 75 days old. Here's Vladimir Putin. You are fighting for the homeland, for its future, so that no one forgets the lessons of World War II, so that there is no place in the world for executioners, punishers and Nazis. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky delivered a message of his own in Kyiv on video. A five-minute video shows him walking alone on what we imagine Putin would have hoped would be the victory parade route in the Ukrainian capital. We know that didn't happen. Zelensky's message was defiant, saying his country will celebrate a new victory day in the future. Victory over Russia. Because only a madman can want to repeat the 2,194 days of war. The one who is already repeating the horrific crimes of the entire Hitler regime and copying everything they did. He is doomed. Vladimir Zelensky there. Of course, he got some support from Canada yesterday. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie were all in Kyiv announcing further military assistance and funding support for Ukraine. So on a day meant to showcase Russia's military might, a smaller than usual parade, today, what to make of what Putin said, and more importantly, what he didn't say, and what of Ukraine's defiance and Canada's show of support. Joining me now is Marcus Kolga, a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and director of DisinfoWatch. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on. Just your, your initial reactions to what we, uh, what we heard and maybe what we didn't hear today from uh, Vladimir Putin. Well, I think the expectation amongst uh, a lot of experts, myself included, was that that, uh, Vladimir Putin would use uh, today's uh, parade and and events to make some sort of an announcement about about Ukraine, perhaps some sort of fabrication about a a victory that certainly uh, hasn't materialized, uh, perhaps the opening up of some 
new front in this conflict. But uh, instead, uh, you know, we heard uh, uh, a lot of grievances, repeated grievances about, uh, you know, NATO being responsible for this war somehow, that uh, ru- that Ukraine is being run by neo- a neo-Nazi government, even though its president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is, of course, Jewish. And, and, you know, the war has not been going very well for Vladimir Putin. So uh, I think he was hoping uh, to demonstrate some sort of progress to his people uh, today, but um, none of that happened. And in fact, you know, the, the celebration supposed to happen were even scaled back. There was a, uh, a scheduled uh, flyover of Russian aircraft in the Z formation. This has become a symbol of this, this war. Uh, even though the, the weather was just fine, it was cancelled. They cited poor weather, even though the sun was shining. Um, and certainly there were much, much fewer tanks uh, rolling through uh, Moscow today because, of course, a lot of them have been uh, destroyed by uh, the Ukrainian defenders. So uh, a very scaled back uh, version of what uh, I think many in the West did uh, to uh, of a celebration parade that everyone expected to happen today. Uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, May 9th is a very important day in, in, in Russia. We, we explained this off the top, but, uh, but it is the day they celebrate victory over the Nazis in the Second World War. It's also a day where Russia itself is very much fought. It's become a much more nationalistic holiday, uh, obviously, over recent times. So thus the expectation that there might be something. And Putin has used this day in the past to, to pronounce about certain things. So that, thus the expectation that maybe today he would do the same. Um, Marcus, because he didn't. What might that tell you? Uh, you know, when sometimes omission is as is as revealing as as something that is said. Well, uh, you know, I, I suspect that he's holding back now. I think he's coming slowly, coming to the realization that um, his aspirations of of retaking Ukraine for Russia. Um, you know, initially there were expectations that Russian forces would march into Kiev. Uh, within three to four days of the invasion starting. There were uh, even plans to hold a Victory Day parade in Kiev. This was, you know, on, on Russian state media. They were, they were talking about this just a month ago. Um, the realization that things are not going as planned, um, the fact that uh, his forces have not made any sort of progress, um, he's unable, Vladimir Putin is unable to repair much of the equipment that he has. The production lines for new tanks, uh, new, more sophisticated weapons have ground to a halt due to Western sanctions. And uh, quite frankly, a lot of these companies are no longer able to process payments and, and fund that production. So all of this, you know, reality, I think, is is crashing in on Vladimir Putin right now. You could see it on his face. I mean, he clearly looked dejected, angry, frustrated. Uh, and so, um, you know, I don't think that Vladimir Putin was expecting, um, you know, this, the day to turn out this way. Uh, his expectations were much higher, but uh, hopefully this will eventually lead to a, a stronger realization within the Kremlin that um, they should perhaps stop and retreat their forces from Ukraine and, and, and avoid further losses, um, given the, the massive losses they've already experienced over the past two months. The, the angry, uh, bitter Vladimir Putin you describe is one we've heard before uh, when it comes to blaming NATO specifically. There was a little bit of a change, today, not, not entirely, but a little bit of a change in the narrative today. He didn't really talk about Ukraine all that much, did he? He really talked about NATO. And this you get the impression they're trying to reframe this as a Russia versus the world sort of affair. Um, is that going to succeed, do you think? 
Well, look, Vladimir Putin has been trying to create a bogeyman out of out of uh, NATO, out of the West for for nearly twenty years already. Um, this is nothing new. Um, Vladimir Putin's own power relies on him um, creating these conflicts, creating. Uh, enemies all around Russia that are trying to um, take it over. Uh, today, of course, you mentioned NATO. He he suggested that uh, NATO was working with Ukraine to try uh, and, and and developing a plan to attack Russia. Um, you're right. I mean that that narrative is shifting right now. It's it's not a surprise. I mean that may give him an an off ramp to pull back out of Ukraine and say, well, you know, Ukraine was never really the objective. The objective was to to hold NATO back, and look, we've succeeded in doing it. So if that's the case, that's fantastic. Um, that that could lead to an eventual uh, end to this to this conflict. It will for at least the West. Uh, give them um, that that victory for Ukraine, that victory. Um, so let's let's hope that is the case. I, I suspect it's not. Um, you know, I think that Vladimir Putin will will try to, uh, you know, engage in more threatening behavior towards uh, other nations. You know, we've we've already uh, heard warnings about a potential new front opening against uh, against Moldova and Transnistria and uh, and also among other uh, EU NATO or sorry NATO uh, member states in, in Eastern Europe so um, you know we better keep a close eye on on what Vladimir's do- Vladimir Putin is up to because he's if anything he's been unpredictable in the past as well what stood in stark contrast to Vladimir Putin's speech, of course, was Vladimir Zelensky's uh, video that he released yesterday, uh, which which was an entirely different um, sort of set a completely different mood. It was a completely different tone. And he spoke, of course, about two victory days in Ukraine. They'll celebrate the victory over the Nazis in the Second World War. They're also going to celebrate their victory over Russia. It's been fascinating to watch uh, the, the information war and just how much Ukraine has been able to stay on the front foot there. Yeah, the the image that that video is extremely powerful. Um, the fact that uh, Zelensky was walking through the streets of Kiev this stands in stark contrast uh, to Russian state media, as I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, the head of RT uh, in a month, just a month ago uh, proclaimed that that uh, Russian troops would be marching on Victory Day through the streets of Kiev. So it, it was no surprise that that Zelensky, who's really, I mean, an incredible communicator, um, he took it that that same narrative and threw it back in the face of of the Kremlin and Putin, and by by clearly, quietly, very calmly walking through the peaceful and quiet streets of Kiev. And I think that demonst- that was intended to demonstrate not only to the Russians but to the world. Uh, Ukraine's resolve in in fighting back against this uh, Russian invasion and the success that it's had in doing so. You know, if I were sitting in the Kremlin and I'm as as one of uh, a member of Vladimir Putin's inner circle, if I saw that video, it would be jarring, it would be alarming, uh, and I would make sure that the people in Russia were never able to see that because that will set off alarm bells uh, all over Russia if they were to see that uh, that video. Yeah, uh, Zelensky, of course, taking what would have been the route that that victory proclaimed, that victory parade would have taken, that Russian victory parade, walking the same streets as Marcus was mentioning. Uh, That's right. A high-profile visit from uh, Justin Trudeau yesterday to Ukraine, along with uh, Christopher Freeland and Melanie Jolie, and we'll talk about that after this. I'm speaking with Marcus Kolga, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and director of Disinfo Watch. We've been talking about May 9th events in Russia. May 9th, of course, Victory Day, uh, as long marked 
uh, victory over the Nazis in the Second World War has become very much a nationalist holiday uh, of late. And today we were expecting to see something new from Vladimir Putin uh, regarding the war in Ukraine. We did not. It was a much quieter angry but but shorter smaller event uh not much new from vladimir putin um you mentioned that we did have a visit over the weekend of course on sunday to ukraine by prime minister trudeau uh christia freeland uh, the deputy prime minister and the foreign affairs minister melanie jolie uh you you thought the timing there was quite significant marcus yeah, absolutely you know it's it's incredibly important that uh western leaders now start visiting uh kiev it demonstrates our Western confidence, our confidence in uh, government to fight back against this uh, this invasion, it demonstrates to the Russians that we are not afraid. We will not be bullied uh, into uh, into leaving our our allies and and the capital in Kiev. And so that that visit itself, um, the the declaration, the, the the raising of the Canadian flag back at our embassy in Kiev, all of those um, uh, you know are are are, are very strong. Uh, demonstrations of support, uh, and uh, and uh, and are will serve as a big morale boost for 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 the Ukrainian government. So it's you know the fact that all three, uh, the prime minister, the deputy prime minister, and the foreign minister visited at the same time is is hugely symbolic. It's uh, it is a it's a big boost for uh, for uh, the rough Ukrainian morale uh, in in Kiev. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was it was an excellent move by the by the prime minister. And certainly some high praise from President Zelensky as well, who called Canada one of the country's best friends, which is which I mean, considering how many people have been to see Zelensky, how many people he's spoken to virtually mostly uh, over the past few months. But that is high praise for Canada. Is Has it been earned in your estimation? I think it has been earned. Uh, Canada was one of the first uh, countries uh, after the initial, the first Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine in 2014, to um, to offer support, um, you know, the training that we have provided for the Ukrainian troops, and this was uh, a decision that was made back in 2015 under the Harper government. Um, that that training that was provided to the Ukrainian army um, may, has made a huge difference. Uh, the army. Uh, the Ukrainian army of today is much, much, much different and much more sophisticated and well-trained than the one in 2014. And uh, and I think that uh, Canada has played a, a large role in that. So I think that, you know, the praise is well-deserved. I think we can give ourselves a pat on the back. Um, you know, surely there's there's much more that we we could be doing. You know, thankfully, we've, uh, we've uh, committed to increasing the amount of uh, lethal defensive aid that we're going to be sending to Ukraine that uh, we've now committed to $500 million in, in defensive aid. Uh, this is something uh, that the Ukrainians need. Um, if we're, if they're going to not only stop, but defeat Vladimir Putin, they're going to need that, that extra equipment. And it seems like they're getting it. So um, yeah, I, you know, I think that Zelensky was, was accurate and, and, and that praise was, was well-placed. I think Canada deserves it. When you look forward now, we've heard from Putin today. We saw Zelensky yesterday. Um, where do you think we're headed now and what needs to be done? Uh, and you've written about this. You wrote a, a piece with Bill Browder, the author, about this uh, recently. What do you think needs to be done to try to continue to make sure this doesn't turn into some sort of awful stalemate the way the Donbass did? Yeah. So number one is, is that we can't turn away from the conflict. Uh, we can't turn our eyes away from it. We need to pay attention, continue paying attention to it, uh, because this could turn into a, a, a longer drawn out a conflict. Um, we need to continue pr- uh, the Russian government. Um, there's, you know, in, in that piece that we wrote, I wrote with Bill Browder, 
We mentioned that, uh, you know, Canada needs to get behind this uh, uh, Frozen Assets Repurposing Act that's moving through the Senate right now. This is a piece of legislation that would allow the Canadian government to use the billions of dollars uh, in assets that we've, we've seized from, from uh, corrupt Russian oligarchs right here in this country. It would allow us to take those assets, um, sell them off and repurpose those funds to support the reconstruction of Ukraine, to, to support the refugees who are, who are coming, who are coming to Canada. Um, this is something that we need, we need to start doing because, you know, if we, if we do that, that will sit, that will place significant pressure on, on those oligarchs that, uh, that help enable the Putin regime and, uh, and may motivate them to uh, change their behavior or at least uh, get, uh, motivate them to try and, and make a change in the leadership of, of their own countries. Marcus Kolga, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Speaking of underdogs, really when this war began, very few people thought Ukraine would be able to hold out this long, specifically with the idea that even the Russians thought they would probably be able to take Kiev pretty fast. So today, as they marked Victory Day, and everything has gone completely wrong since the beginning of the invasion about 75 days ago, they had actually planned to hold Victory Day parades today, May 9th, in the Ukrainian capital, apparently, or at least on Russian state media, they had talked about that uh, a while back. Well, that's not going to happen. So instead of talking about Ukraine and victory today, Vladimir Putin was forced to talk about other things, grievances mostly, about uh, foreign forces trying to separate Russia, Russia being on the defensive, Ukraine wanting nuclear weapons. It was all just a jumble of strange parallel universe kind of stuff from the Russian president. Uh, so speaking at the military parade, he also drew parallels between the Red Armies fighting against Nazi troops many, many, 77 years ago and the Russian forces actions in Ukraine now. He said the campaign in Ukraine was timely and necessary to ward off potential aggression. Here is sound of Putin speaking in Russian, likening Russians' actions in Ukraine now to the Soviets fighting in the Second World War. Дорогие ветераны, товарищи солдаты и матросы, сержанты и старшины, мичманы и прапорщики. Now, you don't have to speak Russian. Actually, you should have seen the look on his face because that was more uh, telling today. He did not look like a happy man. And you could tell he does not sound like a happy man today. Things have gone disastrously wrong for Russia in this invasion. So what's the state of the fight? How has Russia's reset worked? Why is one of the world's biggest militaries still struggling? And what will the coming weeks and months look like on the ground? Joining me now with more on that is retired Australian Army Major General Mick Ryan, former commander of the Australian Defence College and author of War Transformed. He's also someone who's been following this war very closely from the outset. Mick Ryan, welcome back. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be with you again. I guess there was a lot, not much said by Vladimir Putin today. Perhaps what was most interesting was what was not said. What did, what did you make of his Victory Day speech, his much anticipated Victory Day speech? Well, I guess first and foremost, if you were going to give it a title, you'd call it Victory Day 2022, no escalation to see here. <laughs> um, there was a lot of analysts before this speech who thought Putin would use this occasion to announce a victory in Ukraine or declare war or announce some kind of national mobilisation. None of those things happened. Uh, Putin doesn't have to comply with the requirements of Western analysts. He's moving at his own time frame. 
Uh, so there was a lot not in it, but there was also a lot in it that I think we can take away. What would that be? What did what's what struck you? I mean, there was there was certainly a, a framing of the conflict as being, you know, outside forces trying to divide and conquer Russia, Russia as the as the victim here, essentially. Absolutely. I mean, it was part commemoration of past deeds, but it was part declaration of Russian intent. And that intent is to defend Russia against what Putin described as existential threats uh, from the West. He also continued his narrative of linking the Nazis with Ukraine, which is all about the delegitimization of the Ukrainian state and justifying why this military operation uh, in Ukraine is so important. Now, he didn't use the term Ukraine during his speech, but he did use the word Donbass several times, which is also important, not just in this delegitimization theme, but potentially in divining what his ultimate end state of this invasion is. That end state has changed, we, we know, we think, o- over time. Uh, what would you, in listening in to him today and watching the look on his face, he did not look like a happy man today. Not that he usually does, but he looked grumpier than usual, and so did his generals behind him. Um, what do you think the end state now is, and, and is it changing still? The Russians didn't have a lot to celebrate on this day, even though Victory Day should be a cause for, you know, it's a cause for commemoration uh, for victory in 1945. The problems they've had in Ukraine would be profoundly troubling Putin, uh, his senior government ministers and the most senior military leaders. Uh, we should note that General Gerasimov, the chief of, chief of staff of the Russian military, did not appear on this parade. Uh, There could be several reasons why that is. Uh, Some have speculated that he was wounded during his visit to Izium. Others might say that he's not in favour with Putin. They weren't a happy mob. Um, They understand they're going to have to continue to downgrade their expectations from this operation in Ukraine. What might that look like, given what you what you heard today, the specific references to Donbass, that is the area in the east that has been occupied by essentially a Russian proxy separatist force for the or two different ones for the past eight years or so. There was certainly an attempt to move off of Crimea and up into the south of Ukraine. You've analyzed this a bit. What do you think lies ahead now in terms of their uh, of, of their at least their tactical goals? Well, as we've seen, Putin and the Russians have had to revise their theory of victory throughout this war from the installation of a puppet government um, down to much more limited war objectives that have been described by several Russian generals that are focused on the Donbass, Crimea and the south of the country. My sense is that if there is a ceasefire at any point in time, the current state of affairs would be close to where they'll be. The Russians in control of parts of the Donbass, uh, the southern part of the country and Crimea. Uh, That's unless Ukrainians continue some of these offensives uh, like we saw in the north uh, around Kharkiv at the moment and seize more territory from the Russians. We could see the Russians declare or at least ask for some kind of ceasefire in the coming weeks if the Ukrainians really start hurting them in the east. In writing about mobilization in general, general mobilization, which you 
venture to say would be very difficult for Russia right now. You touched on some of the other struggles that they're having in terms of equipment, manpower. Uh, they're not in an enviable situation right now. They're military. They're really not then. Uh, from a manpower point of view, whilst Russia is a very large country, their professionalization program over the last decade has meant they lack the basis for large-scale mobilisation that they might have had even 10 years ago. So the training system, their bases are not capable of taking in the tens or even hundreds of thousands of extra soldiers that will be part of mobilisation. Equipment is another issue. They've already lost mass amounts of tanks and other weapon systems, which will take them years to replace. Uh, that doesn't include an expanded amount of equipment that be, would be required for a mobilised army. They have some significant challenges. Vladimir Zelensky released a video uh, in the last little bit that was of a very different tone than Vladimir Putin's speech, uh, a very confident tone. He walked right down what I presume would have been the parade route for a presumed Russian Victory Day celebration in Kiev. Um, is that confidence that we're seeing from Vladimir Zelensky, is that warranted? Well, part of it, as Zelensky well knows as a former actor, is that leaders need to act the role as well as be the role. He is doing things that give confidence to his people, to unify them, to say, listen, you know, we can be successful here. You know, in the first 48 hours of the war, no one in the world thought that Ukraine could stand up to the Russians. Zelensky did. All the way through, he has been this leader, this unifying influence for the Ukrainian people and indeed many around the world. This is just part of his efforts to continue to lead his people and gain support from Western countries. He's done a very good job of it. If you're Russia, it must incense you that he would be able to deliver that. If you're Vladimir Putin, if you're sitting in the Kremlin, that kind of video shot where it was with the tone it was shot in must be must be a real slap in the face. I think so, and that's probably one of the reasons why Putin was very unhappy. He would have preferred a Victory Day speech, which included uh, a vision of a Russian flag over the government buildings in Ukraine, in particular in Kiev. He didn't get it. He's not going to get it now, certainly not in the short or medium term. So the Russian government, Putin and the high command, really have some thinking to do about how they might bring this to an end. They can't afford for this to become a forever war. Uh, wars are enormously expensive, as the Americans found over 20 years in Afghanistan. The Russians just are not capable of affording this, particularly with the international sanctions regime. I'm speaking with retired Australian Army Major General Mick Ryan, former commander of the Australian Defence College and author of War Transformed. We're talking about Vladimir Putin's Victory Day speech today in Moscow, one that many had anticipated would involve some sort of significant announcement. It did not. 
uh, for the most part, but did signal in some senses where this war might be headed. After this, we'll talk a bit more about the concept of time, something, Mick, that you've looked into. Interestingly, you just brought it up, and time at expense in war is also important. And what chance does Ukraine have when it comes to counteroffenses? As you mentioned, we've seen a bit of that in the north of Ukraine recently. We'll be back with that. I'm speaking with retired Australian Army Major General Mick Ryan, author of War Transformed. We're discussing the state of the war in Ukraine right now. Today, Victory Day in Moscow. Uh, commemorations there, we expected perhaps, or at least there was a lot of speculation that Vladimir Putin may say something uh, that would change perhaps the course of the war. He did not. Uh, we we're very much back to where we were yesterday, today, uh, again, following his speech. But, but Mick, you brought up an interesting point about time and money. And you're, you've said that that time is a real is troublesome now for, for for Russia in this war. Or who has the time on their side right now? Do you think? I think the Ukrainians have the time on their side at the moment. They have not only fought the Russians to a standstill in most parts of their country, they have been able to solicit Western aid, which is really starting to flow in large quantities and, at least in the short term, doesn't show any sign of abating. So Ukraine has access to all the technologies and the weapons that the West can offer. Uh, Ukraine, uh, sorry, Russia, with sanctions and the losses it has, is uh, slowly being attrited. Now, it has thousands, if not tens of thousands, of old tanks and artillery systems in storage across the country. But these are certainly not as capable, uh, probably not in very good repair. So time at the moment is on Ukraine's side, not on Russia's. We are continuing to see attacks on civilian uh, targets. We saw a school in the east uh, today. There was a shopping mall, I believe, in Odessa today as well. Yep. I imagine that that will continue, this targeting of Ukrainian civilians. Yeah, it's what uh, the Russians call strategic operations. It's, it's those things, uh, not on the battlefield, that support both battlefield and political objectives, even if those political objectives uh, might be uh, quite abhorrent to us in the targeting of civilians and cities and these kind of things. Uh, this is Russia trying to, as it's done throughout this war, attempting to terrorise Ukrainian people to put pressure on their leaders to accept some kind of accommodation with the Russians. Uh, it's not working. Uh, just as the German blitz didn't work on the British in the Second World War, Russian bombing of Ukrainian cities is not having the impact that the Russian military would like it to have. We saw Canada's Prime Minister, as well as our Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister in Kiev yesterday. The First Lady of the United States was there. You two were there. I mean, there's been a whole stream of people going into Kiev these days. How important is that? I mean, from your position, how have you assessed the ability of Ukraine's partners, so to speak, to stick together so far? Oh, really, really important. Um, you know, that before this war, there were parts of Ukraine, not in the Donbass, but like Odessa and others that were you know, part Russian, part Ukrainian. This war has changed that calculus. We've seen the country really become a Ukraine, a united Ukraine. Not only has it helped Ukrainian people, it's helped the West to see the country differently as a country that's worth investing in and a country that's worth helping to defend itself. I've always I've been very impressed too, just by the volunteerism, how much is being done, how how in fact they mobilized in many ways. 
not officially, but they mobilised. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. You saw uh, directives where the Ukrainians did not allow men of a certain age to depart the country. That is a That really is a form of mobilisation, even though we might not call it that. Uh, you've seen Ukrainian factories change to the production of war goods. You've seen them really uh, leverage the hacker community for strategic uh, uh, information operations against Russia. So whilst they may not call it a war mobilisation, this has been a total effort from the people of Ukraine. Do you have much hope for peace here anytime soon? It really is difficult to see it occurring in the short term. One of the things I took away from Putin's speech is that while he didn't escalate it, he did not back down. He is not backing away from what he has launched in Ukraine. And at least while he's in charge, the Russians will continue to seek their goals in the east and the south. So peace, at least in my sense, is not a a probability in the short term. I would imagine both leaders, both Zelensky and Putin, are in difficult situations when it comes to negotiating right now. They really are. Russia has to be seen, uh, at least in the eyes of the Russian people, not to have wasted the lives of its people in this operation. Um, And there's also the narrative that it can't be seen to accept a negotiated outcome that makes Russian uh, homeland security worse than what it was beforehand. Uh, On the other hand, the Ukrainian president has to meet the expectations of his own people where he has talked about repelling the Russian invaders, accepting a negotiated settlement that is less than that may be problematic. As a longtime student of war, uh, having been involved in war, what, what worries you now when you look at how this has progressed? The Ukrainian offensives that we've seen in the north and the northeast, if they continue, are clearly a good thing for them to uh, re-seize their territory. But I sense that there is a very careful political calculus here that the Ukrainian president will need to make about pushing far enough so he can have a strong position going into negotiations, but not so far that he uh, forces the Russians into using some kind of weapon of mass destruction. The other thing that is interesting is China has sat on the fence still. But if this goes on for months and months into the future, might they decide that some form of assistance to Russia is in their national interest? They have not done so yet, but China is a country to watch in the coming months as well. Mick Ryan, as always, thank you so much for your time. Always fascinating. Thanks, Ben. It's great to talk to you. So when we plan out the show, obviously, I knew today was May 9th. It was going to be Victory Day in Moscow. There was a lot of anticipation about what Vladimir Putin might say. So we had already planned to talk about Ukraine and Russia and the war today. So it was a pleasant surprise when Justin Trudeau, Christia Freeland, and Melanie Jolie landed in Kiev yesterday. A pleasant surprise because we had people already lined up to talk about it. 
So Canada is establishing or re-establishing its presence in the Ukrainian capital on a visit there Sunday. The Prime Minister, along with uh, Freeland and Jolie, helped raise the flag uh, outside the Canadian embassy in Kyiv. Here's the Prime Minister. So to be there with our ambassador, uh, not just to raise the flag, but to uh, reopen the embassy, she'll be uh, there working uh, every day from now on, uh, is an important symbol, not just of Canada's steadfast friendship with Ukraine, but of the incredible resilience and heroism of the Ukrainian people who ensured that this city did not fall. Of course, Vladimir Putin knows well that city did not fall. He had to mark today the biggest military day or biggest celebration of military victory today without a significant victory in Ukraine. So there was a lot of gripes today from Vladimir Putin. Western analysts, though, expected him to say something of significance today. He didn't really. Still in Kyiv, people were on edge. Intelligence services had warned lawmakers that Russia could do something really significant today, including on the capital. So joining me now with more is Ukrainian Member of Parliament Kira Rudik. She's head of Golosh, or the Voice Party. Thank you for your time, Kira. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We were expecting um, something. It is May, the, uh, May 9th, of course, from Moscow today. What did you make of, uh, of Vladimir Putin's speech and, and what he said and didn't say uh, from a Ukrainian point of view? Uh, we were very worried indeed. I can tell you personally, uh, I was really concerned of what can happen today because we know how Russian propaganda is tied to uh, previous greatness, important dates, all that stuff. So we were warned by our intelligence that there could be attacks up to a nuclear attack. So thank God it didn't happen and we continue fighting our fight. As of Putin's speech today on Red Square, well, uh, people are saying that he did not announce war on Ukraine and he did not say that he is going to push forward, but he never was saying that. He never said, I'm going to uh, invade Ukraine. He never said, I'm going to take Crimea. So it's very important uh, of what he said, but also what he did not say. Uh, he doesn't know what to do, it's obvious. Uh, because there was no major victory to be shown today and to be told, even to be lied to, to Russian people. So he was not even able to do a parade in Mariupol because Russian forces do not have Mariupol. They did not take it in full. So he was uh, giving his bizarre things about that NATO is go was going to attack and Ukraine was posing a threat without actually saying this. And... Uh, you know, today's speech is a perfect example and perfect answer to everybody who is asking me, oh, why don't you get into peaceful negotiation with Russia? You have heard everything. What peaceful negotiation or what agreement could be with uh, the country who seriously thinks that NATO was going to attack them, who seriously thinks that they are fighting Nazism in Ukraine? Uh, so... Um, while the propaganda is on this level, while Ukrainian people are fighting for our freedom, it's uh, impossible to get into peaceful negotiations and to come into any agreement with Russia. But the most important point right now is, no matter what Putin says or does not say or thinks or does not think or even does, uh, we need to stick to our plan. And by we, I mean the democratic world. We need to continue on pushing for sanctions, 
and have them uh, voted in uh, as soon as possible. We need to continue getting Ukraine uh, modern weapons. And they are coming, but they need to come faster and we need more. We always need more. Just answering your, your potential question on that. Always need more weapons because we are fighting every single day. We need to make sure that we are acting as a united front. So, may, so push the other countries uh, that are not involved right now the, to make sure that they will not become new markets for Russian gas and oil. Work on the seventh package of sanctions. Make sure that Russia is um, uh, called country sponsor of terrorism, both in United States and Canada, in Great Britain, everywhere. Make sure that Russian assets are unfrozen and sent to Ukraine, that they will never be returned to Russia. There is lots of stuff to do, and it should be done no matter what Russia is doing, no matter what Putin is saying. We have this great saying in Ukrainian language, we have to do our own thing. Clearly, I, I was watching, of course, the contrast between Vladimir Putin's speech today and Vladimir Zelensky's video yesterday. When you look back over this, the last 60 days with the, you know, we were hearing, obviously, the predictions from Moscow of holding a Victory Day parade on the streets of Kiev. Instead, it was an image of Vladimir Zelensky watching, walking alone on the quiet streets of Kiev yesterday. How powerful a message do you think that was? So I will start with a joke. Uh, you know... There, it was uh, on the internet at the most uh, hard days when Russians thought that they would take Kiev a couple of, uh, like uh, two months ago. So that Zelensky is calling Putin and saying, do you want to hear a joke? Putin says, yes. Zelensky is saying, Kiev. Putin says, I don't get it. And Zelensky says, right, you are not. <laughs> it's a good joke. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a very good one. So today, when I'm thinking back and when I'm thinking about uh, about how far we've got, I'm thinking about this joke because it's very, very important. It's important for my personal safety and uh, because right now uh, it's, uh, uh, it's so amazing that we can get to this point in peaceful Kiev. And it's important for the country that we were able to push back one of the largest armies in the world and make sure that they don't conquer our capital. And though it was their obvious aim. And um, I agree with President Zelensky that that Russia cannot usurp uh, the victory day for the victory in Second World War, but most important that we need to have our own victory day. I'm actually co-author on the legislation to to remove um, today as like a, as a national holiday, and I'm sure that soon we'll have our own day to celebrate. Because uh, um, you know, after Second World War, the world was saying never again. It's Unfortunately, it didn't work this way. Unfortunately, this idea of never again failed. So what we are doing right now, we are making a new history. And this history would have another victory over tyranny, another victory over uh, racism or whatever, uh, with a new victory day that we will have. And we will be celebrating it same as uh, previous victory day with our allies. I mean, through all this over the weekend, there was more attacks. We saw what happened in Zaporizhia, for instance. So the war is still very much going on. Although I remember this from back in 2014 when I was there, it was quite easy to go to Kiev and forget there was a war happening in Donetsk. Um, I guess that's really the focus now to make sure everyone's still focused on what's happening in the East. 
Well, <laughs> the difference between now and 2014 is that it's uh, three to four times in air raid sirens in Kiev, three to four right. times a day. And you have to go to the bomb shelter and you have to uh, stop at the block posts that are everywhere around the city. So the war is still here. We know that. We are trying to live our lives and uh, support our army and make sure that we push for the victory everywhere in the Western cities, in the, uh, in the capital, everywhere. But while we don't have the air force protection systems, there is nowhere in Ukraine where we can feel safe. And you have seen the attacks on the far western parts of the country. Uh, we uh, have had attacks on Kiev just uh, last week. And today, after Putin's speech, there were attacks on school in uh, Donetsk region. And we still don't know how many children are injured right now. But um, it continues and it's here and it's, it's honestly everywhere. Speaking with Kira Rudik, Ukrainian MP and uh, the head of the political party of Voice, uh, Golos, in, in Ukraine. Uh, Canada's Prime Minister, along with our Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister, were in Kiev yesterday uh, on Sunday. And I'm going to ask Kira about uh, the importance of that after this. I'm back with Kira Rudik, Ukrainian MP and a leader of the political party, uh, Golos, or Voice. We've been speaking about uh, Vladimir Putin's May 9th speech, Victory Day speech, uh, and some uh, legislation that she's co-authored that, in fact, would no longer recognize May 9th as Victory Day in Ukraine, but save that day for victory uh, over Russia uh, eventually uh, when that's announced. Akira, uh, our prime minister was there yesterday. Justin Trudeau went, uh, went to Ukraine, uh, went to Kiev after much pressure to do so. How significant was that visit, do you think, yesterday, along with, uh, with the First Lady, Jill Biden, was there too. You too was there. So lots of folks there. But I would ask you about the Canadians. Well, we all admire Justin Trudeau, you know that. So it was, uh, on a personal level, it was an amazing to know that he is visiting us. But um, altogether, all those visits, they were the signs that Ukraine is getting the support of the whole democratic world. This support does not go down and does not uh, decrease. That there is no uh, Ukraine fatigue and that the whole democratic world is behind us, united and making sure that we will get more and more uh, means to win this war, more and more means to push Russians back. So uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was here not only to shake hands and visit Bucha and Irpin and see the atrocities by his own eyes. He also announced an additional support uh, to Ukraine, financial, military, and sanctions. He also um, is one of the people who are spearheading the uh, two important legislation. Is uh, One of it is recognizing Russia as the country sponsor of terrorism, mm -hmm. critically important for uh, the countries who are not involved in supporting Ukraine, to uh, to know that the economic relations with Russia would be toxic. And second is recognizing uh, what is happening in Ukraine genocide. It was voted in um, Canadian Parliament, but uh, we need to continue pushing on this matter because uh, it um, uh, Canada being the leader in this uh, is uh, putting a pressure on the United States, on the United Kingdom and European countries to do the same. And uh, of course, I'm extremely grateful for uh, for this visit. Um, it, it was a pleasure. It was a real, real pleasure. 
it's important, obviously, though, that leaders go to Bucha, that leaders go to Irpin, that go to see where the destruction was, I imagine. You know, I think in Bucha and Irpin, there were so many international leaders and presidents and prime ministers. And every time they coming in, they are looking and saying, no way this is happening in 21st century in, in the democratic country in the center of Europe. And this is what I want all of them to understand, that the war is real, that people are suffering here real. It's not a picture on TV or just like a list of, of things on the paper. It's a real uh, damage that's being done. It's a real atrocities that's been committed. And it's another additional point to say that Russia needs to be stopped. I haven't seen actually any politician who wouldn't be crying when, when they see the mass grave where with their children and uh, destroyed houses and uh, and bombardments like in really in second world war and talk to the refugees and talk to the people who were under on under the occupation and talk to the women who were raped by russian soldiers you just cannot process it it stays with you forever it stays with you reminding you every single day this is exactly what we are fighting to not be repeated this is a real never again this is what they, they, they will carry it after the visit and they would know to push forward. They would know that somewhere far in the east, in Donetsk, in Luhansk, in Mariupol, in uh, Kherson, in uh, the Parisian region, there are people who are suffering the same atrocities. We just don't know about it just yet. There are areas of Ukraine that are destroyed exactly the same way as Bucha and Irpin were destroyed. And what is happening in Mariupol, we even don't, we even cannot imagine, but at some point we will be able to see, and it will be another come and see point. Kira, you mentioned one of the other things you were looking for was that uh, money seized from the Russian central bank, from oligarchs and so on. uh, And Canada has started to pursue this. I know the Americans are looking at this too, that that money then be used to help finance the rebuilding of Ukraine. Yes, it's... uh, uh, extremely important, first of all, is that somebody finishes this process first, and I do believe that Canada would be uh, would be the first country because you are the farthest at the process in terms of having the bill in and having the parliament uh, ready to vote for it. Uh, the United States are still at the process of just submitting the bills, and uh, it's super unfair that Canadian citizens, that United States citizens, that European citizens will have to pay from their tax dollars to uh, for Ukrainian rebuilding, which we are super grateful for. But shouldn't Russian money be used for that? And if there are Russian money that are seized and frozen, uh, money of Russian banks and money of uh, oligarchs uh, who are under the sanctions, shouldn't this money be used to rebuild Ukraine? I strongly believe so. Kira, what should we be looking for now in the next, May 9th has come and gone. What do you think we should be looking out for uh, over the next month or so? So uh, we should be looking for the six package of sanctions to be voted in and see how Russian money and Russian lobbies would be making everything possible and impossible for that not to happen. Because the ban on Russian oil would be very painful for Russia, even though it would start if only in six months. 
We will see that Russia will try to uh, have more and more airstrikes on the peaceful uh, areas of Ukraine and especially on the infrastructure objects such as trains because they know that railroad is the means for us to get the weapons to the front and to get the humanitarian support in. So this is what they have been doing for the last couple of weeks, and I think this is what would continue. So our internal concentration right now is honestly on very quick rebuilding of um, uh, of the infrastructure so we can continue the logistics. Kira Rudik, thank you so much for your time tonight, as always. Thank you, and glory to Ukraine. My next guest is the head of one of BC's most successful family-run businesses, one passed down from his grandfather to his father to him, from a cash and carry in Vancouver's Chinatown to companies that will be familiar to many none so, perhaps then London Drugs with nearly 80 stores across Western Canada, a mainstay uh, in BC and Vancouver as well. Brant Louis is a longtime philanthropist, the former chancellor of Simon Fraser University, a member of the Order of British Columbia, and a Canadian Business Hall of Fame inductee. But recently, he's also lent his voice to something that is both a source of pride and a source of concern. Louis is of Chinese heritage. He's a strong supporter of efforts to make sure the community's stories and heritage is preserved. And during Asian History Month, May, Louis is also concerned about the rise in reported incidents of anti-Asian racism seen over the past few years in this country. So much so that he's written opinion pieces for both the Globe and Mail and the Vancouver Sun. And Brant Louis, chairman and chief executive officer of the HY Louis Group of Companies, which includes London Drugs, joins me now with more. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ben. I'm happy to be here. You've uh, written a few opinion pieces, both for the Global Mail and the Vancouver Sun of late, uh, really focusing on the history of, of, of Asian Canadians and how they are the story of this country. Why did you feel it was important? Why was the timing important to, to try to deliver that message? Well, I think the reason why I decided that it was important now is that hopefully we thought that discrimination that we, uh, as we know it, disappeared, you know, at these day and age, we should not have to be discriminating against others. And, and yes, we know about the early discrimination of uh, maybe 50 years ago, certainly during my parents' time and my grandparents' time. But I thought that by the time uh, that I was around, that I went to school, that I attended university and started to enter the business world, that discrimination as we know it would disappear appear or at least go underground and it would not be such an important part but what we've seen with this pandemic is the rise of discrimination and it seems like it instead of getting better with time and with education it hasn't gotten better it's gotten worse and so i just decided that it was time to start telling the story of the chinese who came to canada and what part they played in building the nation of canada that we know it as today and your family history is in some ways encapsulates the the whole thing in many ways it's i mean there are a lot of stories being shared but really the louis family story is a specifically fascinating one because it begins more than 135 140 years ago and and exists till this day obviously well, it's interesting. My maternal side of the family came to Canada before it was a country around 1862, and it came to Victoria at the time, where my 
paternal side of the family. My great my grandfather came in 1898, and he started by farming, and farming in what we know as uh, Boundary Road and Marine Way. And I believe the story goes that he had and a partner had leased some land from John Oliver, and they used to grow vegetables, and uh, he would. Uh, take these vegetables uh, by horse and buggy each day and deliver them to his customers in the city of Vancouver every day. And so that's how he started. And around 1903, he decided to open a general store. And that general store basically provided seed and fertilizer and other goods to the local Chinese people living in the community at the time. And uh, from 1903 right through till today was the beginnings of his company. It became the H.Y. Louis Company. And the H.Y. Louis Company, uh, from its beginnings of 1903 right into today, have a number of retailing businesses such as London Drugs and uh, IGA and Fresh Street Markets, to name a few. And, and, and you were explaining uh, a bit about your own history as well. I mean, your parents were both born in this country. You were born here in 1943. But you also explained in one of your opinion pieces that at the time, none of you were Canadian citizens, despite how long your family had been here and how much and how successful they had ultimately become. Yes, that's true. My father was born here in 1914. My mother was born in 1919. And I was born in 1943. And unfortunately, we were not Canadian citizens, but we were described by the Canadian government at that time as resident aliens. And this was due specifically to the Chinese exclusion, which was passed in 1923. And so until that act was repealed in 1947, we were not granted the rights of Canadian citizenship. But after the repeal of that act, we finally were. That didn't mean that discrimination ended. You know, it merely meant that we were now Canadian citizens. And hopefully we could eventually enjoy the benefits of Canadian citizenship. But our parents and our grandparents, to some extent, still had to uh, deal with discrimination even after that date. You mentioned earlier that one of the things that most disappointed you or at least one of the, the truisms of what we've seen recently is that the discrimination that you've witnessed on the rise over the last few years reminds you of stories that your parents and your grandparents told you, but stories you thought you'd never have to hear again. Yes, that's true. You know, it's interesting. Most of us have heard stories from our parents and grandparents, that oral history that we never thought concerned us. You know, it was interesting stories, maybe at the time that we were told it, but, you know, we were told these stories and you kind of forgot about them. And I only started to start remembering these stories as the discrimination of the uh, current day became more prevalent. And it's interesting because a lot of the stories that I now remember that were told by my parents and grandparents were very similar to what we've had to experience with the onset of discrimination that has cropped up since the pandemic. And you know, the Chinese have had a very interesting history. When you look at the Chinese history of Canada, you've ha- we've had to deal with the head tax. You know, we've had to deal with the uh, 1923 Exclusion Act. 
we've had to deal with the fact that when war was declared in 1939, that we were excluded from having to be conscripted to fight for this country on the grounds that if we ask Chinese to fight and die for their country, they would ask for the right to be citizens. You know, they were, and because we weren't Canadian citizens, both my parents were denied the ability to study for a professional degree at the University of British Columbia, because the argument at that point was, well, there's no point training you to be a lawyer, a pharmacist, an accountant, a doctor, if you're not able to practice. And the reason why you're not able to practice is that you're not a Canadian citizen. And so, you know, we've had to go through all of these differences and all of these uh, barriers that have been to prevent us from getting ahead. But somehow the Chinese have managed to overcome these uh, difficulties, most of us, and uh, we've managed to not allow that to affect our future going forward. I'm speaking with Brant Louie, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the H.Y. Louie Group of Companies, which includes London Drugs. More about Asian Heritage Month after this. I'm speaking with Brant Louie, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the H.Y. Louie Group of Companies, which includes London Drugs, about Asian Heritage Month, his Chinese heritage, and concerns over the rise in anti-Asian racism in this country of late. How important a role, because, you know, Chinatowns across Canada are starting to disappear, or have, or getting smaller. How important are the historical Chinatowns now? in trying to preserve the history that you were speaking about. Uh, you know, one of the lines that you point out that your father told you was, you can forgive, but never forget. Well, I think it's very important. Uh, you know, Vancouver's Chinatown is a very, very historic place. It was uh, created uh, when the Chinese first started to come here and, and stay here in the uh, 1880s. And most of those Chinese came to help build the railroad. And the railroad, obviously, as we all know, was the linchpin to creating the country of Canada. And uh, so there have been some organizations in Vancouver to try and preserve Chinatown. As we know, most Chinatowns have, since the Chinese have been able to live outside of Chinatown. But this wasn't always the case. When I was growing up, there were very few Chinese families who actually lived out of Chinatown. My family was one of the very few that didn't live in Chinatown. But a lot of Chinese in those days lived in Chinatown and it was a very large and thriving community. And today, the Chinese no longer live in Chinatown except for those that want to stay there for whatever reason or for those new immigrants who come here and want to be close to others who are very similar to them. You know, there have been organizations to, to, who've been developed, such as the Storytelling Center, and just recently the Canadian Chinese Museum that tries to protect cultural sites. And uh, those two organizations in Vancouver are the repositories for both the history and stories of the Chinese. And hopefully those two organizations are located in Chinatown and they're both trying 
to rejuvenate Bank Chinatown to become a, once again a very thriving hub. What did your Chinese ethnicity mean to you over the over the, growing up, uh, going to work for your in your father's company after studying accountancy? What has it meant to you over the course of of, of your career of, of and your lifetime? Well, it's that's a, that's an interesting uh, subject, uh, you know, because uh, I grew up uh, outside, not living in Chinatown. I grew up in the area of Carisdale and Dunbar. And as I said earlier, my family was one of the very first families not to actually live in Chinatown, but to live outside of Chinatown. And I know that when my parents decided that they wanted to uh, live in the Dunbar-Carestill region, they bought a house uh, in 1941. And I remember the stories being told that the neighbors, uh, uh, some neighbors, uh, opposed uh, them moving in because they felt that... uh, a Chinese moving into their neighborhood would lessen the value of their real estate. And so they uh, protested strongly. Now, I can't say that all of the neighbors were like that. There were some neighbors that were very, very supportive of us. And I remember one of them living next door to us, and her name was Amy Lee, and she was English. Right. And she was a strong supporter of ours, and she, uh, you know, we moved right next door to us and she was right there to help us move in and to be very friendly to my parents. And for many, many years, she lived there until she died uh, as our neighbor. And uh, we always were very thankful for that relationship that she showed us. And we, she helped us get started and she helped us in that neighborhood. And so she, she was somebody who um, was a very strong supporter of not being racist and not uh, treating people differently because of the color of their skin. And she was a very strong supporter of uh, my parents and my, my parents and my mother and our family. And, uh, and to this day, I will always remember her kindness to us there. So I went to Carousel School, Southland School, I graduated in 1961. I went to UBC and I studied accounting. We never thought about discrimination at that time because one of the things my parents used to tell me was don't let the history of the past influence your future. You know, the history of the past and the discrimination of past generations is one thing, but don't let that affect you from succeeding and moving forward. And so we, we didn't really view it as, a, as a something that would, as an impediment to hold us back. And so I graduated from UBC in 1966. But it's interesting at that time when I did graduate, one of the professors at the University of British Columbia said, you know, I understand you want to article and become a chartered accountant. And I said, yes, I would like to. And so he said, there will be a couple of firms that you will see out there that have an unwritten policy that they will not hire anybody of Asian descent. This is in the 60s, right? This is in the 60s. 1966. And he said, I just wanted to tell you that uh, there, there are a couple out there that follow that unwritten policy, but uh, because there are, is a great need for uh, accounting students with articling, you should have no problem 
finding employment. But you should be completely aware that there will be a few firms that won't uh, hire you, that uh, won't uh, hire you because of your uh, ethnicity. And so I never forgot that. Uh, he was a, a fine gentleman at the university who uh, took care of all of his students. Uh, and he just was giving us a warning that we shouldn't be too disappointed that there were some people still thinking about that. And I never forgot that, you know, and I never forgot the firm that he mentioned. And I won't mention it here today because I don't think it's fair. But I never forgot that information he gave us. But I never allowed that to interfere with my own ability to get ahead. I always believed that people got ahead because of their own abilities and their own merit and the hard work that they were prepared to put in. And so I did article with a very fine firm of uh, Touche Roth, which is today Deloitte's. Mm. And I did reasonably well. And I went on to uh, enter my own family business after spending about six years with uh, this company, a couple of years after I graduated. And the rest of my history, I worked with my father and uh, worked uh, as he developed and built the business. I'm speaking with Brant Louis, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the HY Louis Group of Companies, which includes London Drugs. We're talking about Asian History Month. Um, some opinion pieces that Mr. Louis has written, both for the Vancouver Sun and Global Mail, about the importance of uh, Asian Canadians and the history in this country, Chinese Canadians specifically, or Canadians of Chinese heritage. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more about day-to-day operations in London Drugs, a fascinating time for the retail business, from, for those of us on the outside looking to see the impact of COVID, what was done during the pandemic, supply chain issues. And we'll talk a bit about that after this. I'm speaking with Brant Louie, the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the HY Louie Group of Companies, which includes London Drugs. We've been talking, though, about about Mr. Louis' uh, Asian heritage, his Chinese heritage, the importance of that in this Asian Heritage Month, uh, and also just uh, the rise of anti-Asian racism uh, over the past few years in this country and how much of a concern that has been. Uh, Mr. Louis, clearly uh, London Drugs is a day-to-day operation, a hugely successful one. What have some of the challenges been during during COVID? I mean, we've spoken a lot about them anecdotally on the outside, supply chains, keeping employees safe. Uh, when you look to the past, what are you proud of? And when you look to the future, what do you worry about? Well, London Drugs, as we all know, is a very, very successful company in Western Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's very successful because I believe it follows the principles that my grandfather ex- wrote many years ago. Mm-hmm. And those beliefs that he followed are found in letters that he wrote to his sons. And, uh, of course, my grandfather, H.Y. Louis, died in 1934, but prior to his death, he wrote down his feelings uh, for posterity. And, uh, And those letters we discovered many years later. And by and large, those letters lays out the ethical standards that people should follow in running a business. And we believe that the success of London Drugs and the success of all of the companies that we have participated in is because of the fact that we have believed in those values, those ethical values of treating people right, treating your customers well, treating the communities in which you do business well. You know, one of the great beliefs that my grandfather had, he said, you know what, we should always be willing to be kind and charitable. 
He said, particularly to the communities where we have stores, because these are where our employees come from. These are where our customers reside. And he said, if we have been successful, it is because of the communities in which we have been able to do business successfully. And so we owe it back to some of these communities to always be there for them when they're needed. You know, it's interesting that, uh, the, you know, the, I'm not sure whether your listeners know, but my father bought London Drugs in 1976 on a handshake. He had met the American owners and uh, they uh, were looking to dispose of uh, some assets they owned in Canada, which included London Drugs. And he met with them for about 20 or 30 minutes and they wanted to be assured that he could afford to pay the price because an agreement had already been worked out and they were out trying to shop this agreement. And so my father bought the uh, the the organization on a handshake after only meeting them for about 20 minutes and having uh, the Royal Bank of Canada uh, proved to these people that uh, he was able to uh, fund the purchase of this assets. And so, you know, my father has always been a great believer in, in, in people well, in following the values. And, you know, in Chinese culture, this is called the laws or mandate of heaven, where leaders are leaders who take care of their people, who, who are honorable, who are ethical in how they deal with uh, the business. We don't take a short-term view of anything. We look at things on a very, very long term. And you know what? One of the things I'm most proud about is you look at the uh, ethnic men, our employees, they include people from all colors and all walks of life. We give everybody an equal opportunity and we don't discriminate against anybody. And everybody is judged purely on their abilities and their merits to, to provide us a service that we are willing to pay for. And so I'm very, really, I'm very proud of the team of people that we've put together over the years. You know, we've owned the company now 46 years, and I'm more proud of our team of people today than I've ever been. Looking forward, um, hopes and concerns when you look ahead. Well, I'm very fortunate that uh, I was the third generation to take over from my family in this regard. I am very happy to say that my two sons, who represent the fourth generation, have come in and have been basically with me since around 2010, 2011. And so being my age today of 79, I've turned over most of the daily operations to both of my two sons, and they are now running the business. And they have the same values and ethical standards that I had, that my father had, and that my grandfather exposed to his children about how a business should be run. And I'm very happy that uh, my children are continuing to follow in my footsteps with the same principles that we believed in. You know, my father had two great sayings. One of them was, we may forgive, but we should never forget. And the reason that has happened is that by not forgetting, 
by not forgetting gives us that power, but by not, but by gives us that strength that we don't allow the past to hold us back and that our future, we can go and build our future without being having roadblocks thrown up in our way. The other thing that my family has always believed in is we believe that we should always be willing to fund the future. And this is why, if you look at our philanthropic records over the years, we tend to support and fund a lot of education and scholarships because we truly believe that education is the key to our success, but it is the key to this country's success. And if we can fund the education for those people who are going to be our next leaders in this country, then I think that our country will continue to be strong and be what it is today. Brent Louis, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. And I'm happy to be with you, Ben. 